My name is Madeline Robles. I'm 12 years old, and I have been attending Sale Street Baptist Church my entire life. My parents, Tim and Chelsea Robles, have always taught me and my sister that God teaches us to be servants in the church. So I have served as a VBS volunteer and have very much enjoyed serving in the youth group praise team. In fact, I'm the third generation in my family to sing with Mr. Justin. My grandmother, my mother, and now me have all been involved with singing in the church under the leadership of Mr. Justin. And today I'll be reading Mark 12, verses 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get them from some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. So with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one another, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is their heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that, built, that builders rejected had become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest them, but feared the people, for they had perceived that, the, that they had to the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Would you please bow your heads in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for us to gather here today. As, we, as the family, we thank you for the scripture you have blessed us with. And we ask you to be with Mr. Justin as he brings us this message with us this morning. Fill him with love, joy, and peace, and confidence. In your son's name, Jesus Christ, amen. All right. That's my good buddy, Maddie, man. We've been singing on Wednesday nights with uh, Ryder and Nevi. And, uh, okay, so I know you're already looking at your watch. You're like, dude, it's already 11, almost 11.15. What the heck are you doing? They gave Justin a mic. That's a mistake. Well, in case you don't know me, I'll, go, I'll be brief. Uh, my name's Justin Martindale. I'm the worship director at the church, and then occasionally I get the opportunity to preach. I'm Emily's husband. I'm Artie and JJ's dad. So we're just going to dig right into this passage. So if you have a Bible, pull it out. Let's go to Mark 12. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in a pew back near you. If you don't own a Bible, steal it. No one will stop you, I guarantee you. And I might get in trouble for saying that, but it's going to be fine. So we're talking about uh, uh, yesterday, uh, sorry, uh, last Sunday whenever... Um, Jeff preached, he preached on the questioning of, of Jesus' authority from the chief priests. You know, they asked him, by what authority does he do all of these things? And then in typical, like, awesome Jesus moment, he just says, well, you know, my baptism, where'd that come from? To come from heaven or from man? So they lie because they don't want to offend the people around them. And it seems like the conversation is almost over, but it's like, hey, you know, before you guys kind of slither off to wherever you're going to go, I'm going to tell you a story. And I love Jesus' stories, man. These parables are designed by God to conceal truth from those who would not seek the truth, and they are to expose the truth to those who would seek it and find it. So that's most of the time with the parables. 
you see the, the chief priests and the people that he's kind of uh, talking about don't seem to really know what he's talking about. The people that would seek the truth, it is revealed to them. And then other times Jesus explains the parables. Uh, whenever we talk about the peril of the coin and the sheep and the, and the lost son, Jesus actually explains this parable because he wants them to understand what he's talking about. This parable is a little different because this is probably the only parable that Jesus told, at least what we have in our canon of Scripture, that the chief priests understand that Jesus is talking about them. And that's important because this is three days before Jesus is going to go to the cross. This is Wednesday before the Friday in which Jesus will ultimately be beaten and crucified. So now his timeline, he's got enough time now where he's like, man, I'm just going to lay it all out there. I'm going to talk right to you, and you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. So it's sort of like he used to hide it in plain sight, but this time he's being plain with his words. It's almost less of a parable and more of an allegory. So these parables, they either soften the heart and convert, or they harden the heart and condemn. Just like the cleansing of the temple, the words of Christ either draw people to himself or they drive people away. This parable is different in that it's hardly a parable, it's a straight allegory for what is happening in the present moment. Okay, so he begins to tell the story about a vineyard. A, a man plants a vineyard, all right? And that's all throughout the Old Testament. In Isaiah, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, right? So he's not really hiding this truth from them. This is in, straight out of Scripture, so as soon as they would have heard him talking about this vineyard, they knew exactly what he was talking about. Israel has been, was referred to as this vineyard all throughout the Old Testament and all throughout their teaching, right? So they would have known, and I'm going to kind of go a little quicker than the way I have things written out. They would have known that the vineyard was Israel. They would have known that the owner was the Lord Almighty. They would have known the tenants were themselves. And then ultimately, through Jesus' message, they're going to know that the Son is the Messiah. Amen? Jeremiah wrote of this exact same thing, the messengers sent to the tenants. So this gracious, man, this gracious uh, landowner builds this uh, vineyard. He puts a wine press on it. He builds a wall. He gives it protection. He builds a tower so that they could watch out and, and keep safe from people who would take from them. Well, in Jeremiah, it says, From the day that our fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all of my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So these messengers that are now going to this vineyard in this story that Jesus is, is talking about, he's telling them, these are the prophets, these are the people that you persecuted, the messengers of God. He talks about this, this great generosity of this, of this, this landowner, God, of God the Father. And the, so when he builds this vineyard and he goes off on this long journey and leaves it in the hands of these tenants that are to grow good fruit, right? They're supposed to grow grapes and make wine. And then he says, I want to send my messenger to come get my, you know, my share of the loot, man. It's my land. So I live in Jennings, which is not far from Crowley, Louisiana, which is where the premier rice factory is. And uh, it would be like if somebody built you a rice farm in the middle of uh, South Central Louisiana and said, hey, look, do what you got to do with this. I gave you all the tools. I gave you all the machinery, gave you the, the rice dryer. I'm just going to come back and just take my share of it, right? Grapes take a long time to grow. Now, that's something I think is very important, right? It, and especially back then, it would have taken at least five years for a crop to yield a good enough fruit to be able to use it to make wine. So they'd have to use the grapes to actually sort of... Um, make the soil better. You continue to grow the grapes. The grapes make the soil better. You grow better grapes, make better wine, right? So it would have been about five years before this uh, landowner would have sent these messengers, right? 
So they would have had plenty of time to grow this good fruit and to uh, have their stash ready for the landowner so that he could come and take what is his. But instead, they decide, this is ours now. And Luke, uh, Luke 13 makes this very clear about the messengers and who these people are and that these are the prophets that they've decided to persecute and to kill. Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. These are the messengers of God. So now the owner sends his final messenger, he, one that he calls his beloved son. So Jesus now, and like, dude, G- Jesus is absolutely fine. I, I don't want to say finally, but he is absolutely saying exactly who he is because the conversation just before this in the scripture that Jeff preached on last week, when they asked him by what authority his, that he comes, he talks about his baptism. They would have known about this baptism because John the Baptist was involved, Jesus was involved. These guys know about this. And he says that the, the landowner sends his beloved son. Jesus is now deliberately calling back to his own baptism. In the first conversation that they had just had, when God said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He's telling the chiefs, I am the son. I am the Messiah. I am the final messenger of God. After me will come no other. The chiefs had decided to become God, to appropriate this vineyard, for themselves in their own power and build it upon a foundation of pride and of greed. But Jesus is saying, no, I am God's final word. No other word will come. This is mine. This belongs to me. And then he asked them, what should the owner do with the murderous tenants? In the parallel account of Matthew, they say he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits in their seasons. They had hardened their hearts so hard that in this moment condemned themselves because they will ultimately kill this messenger, Jesus Christ, in just two days from now. In the book of Acts, it's further displayed, speaking to the Jews, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, We are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. They judge themselves. And this is going to be a hard truth for some people to swallow this morning. I know we've we've been talking about people getting saved, and we've been singing, and people getting baptized, but this is a hard truth, and I only tell you this in love, that people will walk into hell willingly. They will not be dragged there against their will. No one today, if asked, would say that they choose to go to hell. But to quote C.S. Lewis from The Problem of Pain, there are only two kinds of people. In the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is open. People do not say, yes, I want to go to hell. If you were to poll them on the street, no one would say that. But every day, the lost make choices instead to not be in the presence of God's love and to not abide in the love of Jesus Christ. The vineyard at this point has now changed hands and the harvest is coming. 
Then Jesus says something almost seemingly out of left field, unrelated to the story, but calls into the story itself, the story of all of creation and of salvation. When he says, have you not read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Posing it as a question. He's quoting Psalm 118. I thank you that you've answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our sight. He is now expressing, I am who David was talking about. I am who Isaiah was talking about when David quoted Isaiah. Out of Isaiah 5, when he quotes Isaiah 5 in the Psalm 118, he says, I am who Isaiah was speaking about. Those messengers that you, can, that you killed and beat and sent away were all talking about me. I am the cornerstone of creation and of salvation. I am the Messiah. Colossians, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's the word of, that is Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone of creation. Creation, before the creation that we know it matters, space and time, all these, these three things that have to exist in order for existence to exist. Did you guys write that down? That, okay. At first, before the creation of creation as we know it, God's love existed in and of himself. The Trinitarian love of the triune God existed. Now, all of God's attributes existed, but this was the only attribute that had anything for it to act upon. Does that make sense? All there was was God, the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existing together before time was created. That is the cornerstone of our creation. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because I can kind of get weird. Uh, so, it, it, without the love of the triune God, if any part of that ceases to love one part of the other, all reality that we know and all creation falls apart under its own weight. So, we're not going to, like I said, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, because me and Shelly, we will talk about that all day. But the cornerstone of Christian life is abiding love of Christ. So, cornerstone is a masonry term, right? I think we all kind of get that. So the cornerstone would have been the first stone that was laid in the construction of whatever it is they were building, whether it was a wall or if it was a building or a wine press or a tower or something like that. It would have been the first stone. But not only that, it would have been the measuring stone, the measuring brick, like the guys from Malawi were talking about, they were making the bricks for the, the buildings that they were building. So they had to have a stone that was the unit of measure for all the other stones to be made on site because it was easier to make bricks on site than to bring them from somewhere else, obviously. So they would use one stone. It's like, this is the perfect one. This is the perfect size to meet this blueprint where we can have this many going this way, this many going that way. They would measure every stone against that one stone. But not only that, now this isn't always true, but I think it's something that we can glean something from, that the cornerstone would have always faced northeast, would have pointed northeast. And the reason why is so that the face of the building always faced north. So it was also directional. If you could find the cornerstone, you could bear 
exactly where, you're, where you were as far as a compass, right? You could find your direction based on which direction the point of the cornerstone faced. So, set the directions for all stone after. It was the measuring stone for the creation of others, and it also bore the weight of the structure under construction. Lucas sent me a video. I forgot to put it in the, in the computer, but he sent me a video of uh, a man with the bricks that they were making laying the cornerstone, and you would build the building off of the cornerstone, up and then out. So it would bear the weight of the construction in progress. So just as Colossians said, Jesus was the firstborn of creation, so the cornerstone is the first stone laid. So I want you to think about this. Our lives are cityscapes of buildings and walls and bridges between people. As believers, we evaluate and discern our lives. What are the cornerstones of the structures that we navigate through of our cities of our lives? So um, I'll just give you a for instance. I'll give you a couple of examples about this. So the cornerstone of Emily and I's finances. We're going to talk about me and my wife's finances. This is, she's like going, what are you doing, dude? There are no finances. What are you talking about? The cornerstone of our finances after giving and, and after being good stewards of it is that the Martindales eat good. Do you understand what I'm saying? I, uh, I don't know how I'm not 800 pounds and confined to my home with how good the Martindales eat. And because of that, we use good ingredients, we make good food, we do it pretty much every night. We have to write that into our budget, right? We don't go on like a lot of vacations. As you guys know, I own three shirts and one pair of pants. Like that's it. So even in our clothes budget, we go like, if I buy that new shirt, I don't get that fish. Um, I'm gonna go with the fish. So that, that's part of the cornerstone of our finances. We base everything kind of like after generosity and grat, we like, okay, how are we gonna be able to, you know, I wanna cook that this week. Let's figure that out. So we have to kind of map our finances around that. Now that's a, that's a funny way of putting it, but let's think of another way. So maybe in your life, right? I'm gonna talk about, marriage for a second, and, I, and this uh, it may apply to some of you, it may not, but it's just one, for instance, of, like I said, cornerstones of our lives and how we look at things and how we place things. If your marriage is built on pride and, and the love of self and getting your own way, then the stones that stack on it will begin to sway and crumble the higher it goes. So it's kind of like driving over the I-10 bridge. You kind of like, you grip the steering wheel a little tighter, maybe cross your fingers. So, uh, so you just hold your breath waiting for disaster. But here's the thing. If you're looking at your life right now, evaluating parts of your life, and you're like, man, this, this is not built on the right thing, you can't just replace a bad cornerstone with a good one. You have to tear the whole structure down and rebuild it on a good foundation. The whole wall has to come down and the pieces thrown into the sea. And by God's grace, we are afforded this opportunity to repent and look at our spouse, for instance, and say, let's rebuild this on a solid foundation. This is repentance. We get to tear things down and go, God, build up in me a new marriage on a foundation of love and of trust and of, and of service and of abiding love of Christ. So... I'm not saying that you're, this is not me saying you're a bad person. I, I'm not saying that you are bad for doing that. I'm, well, all I'm saying is, is that you've been trying to fix things on your own. I think a lot of us, you've been trying to fix the wall or the building. You're trying to put stucco over the cracks that are starting to form, but it, it, you've been working so hard to do it. But here's the thing, it's just, it's not going to work. You're going to have to tear it down and rebuild it. 
And our relationships with non-believers, our cornerstones of those relationships have to be a love of Christ and a desperate desire for them to know him. There's no such thing as an undercover Christian. So when we go into our relationships with the world now, when we think about us leaving this building and going and doing that thing, our main mission, our cornerstone, is a desperate desire for people to know Jesus and to be saved. Eventually, the gospel message either softens and converts or it hardens and condemns. A deep, abiding love of Jesus and listen to me well, write this down if you have to, should move us to share his message, to run from sin and worldliness, and to become a greater mystery to the unbeliever. I'm sorry if maybe like, you're hearing this for the first time, that that's what it's like to be a Christian in an unbelieving world, but this is the truth. And really, even if you didn't change the way you feel about anything today, the culture and the world are running so far from us into the next part that we will begin to look like a mystery to them anyway. You see, look at what you see whenever you read on Facebook or on the news about people's identity and what they think about themselves. And The culture is running away from us, and we are running away from it further and further into the cross. But... There's good news to be had. It's the, 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 that the cornerstone of our friendships with non-believers and our relationship with the world is the same cornerstone for our friendships with our brothers and sisters in the faith, a deep abiding love of Christ. So when I was 15, I went uh, to Hamilton Christian Academy because I'm a super good kid and never did anything wrong ever in my life. And... Uh, I used to call it Hamilton Christian Penitentiary because that's where all the bad kids went. Well, whenever I went there, I met Shelly, I think on my first day of school, and, I, and she wore a dress, and that was strange. But um, she was my friend. She became my friend because she played music, and I played music, and we, I was in your class. And her deep abiding love of Christ moved her to share the gospel with me every chance that she got. And only by the grace of God, and I thank him every day that that message was moved me to make a decision to follow him. So her deep abiding love of Christ shared with me the message, and then our shared deep abiding love of Christ bound us together. And she's still my friend. She sits over there, she plays the bass guitar. She's my best friend. She's like my mother. Amen? All right. First Peter. So put away all malice. So this is... Peter writing to the persecuted churches in Asia Minor. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. For those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. 
just like the chief priests, when Jesus is telling them this story, he, this is a rock of stumbling for them because they have decided to make themselves God and appropriate this for themselves. So, now the second piece of greater news. Now, this is the good news. The cornerstone of salvation is Christ's love of us and his obedience to God. Jesus is the only stone perfect enough to bear the sins of the world he is the cornerstone of the winepress of salvation that the wrath of God crushed Jesus and extracted from his veins the justification for sin. Now write this down. Jesus is not simply the propitiator, the one who satisfies God, but the propitiation. He is what satisfies God. He is what satisfies the justice of God and satisfies the wrath of God. The chief priests and the scribes did not see this. They chose themselves and their power and need for more and their preconceptions of the Messiah. They chose that over this. So if you're listening today and you're evaluating yourself, is your cornerstone your heritage? Is it your Bible knowledge? Because you can love the Word and not love the Father. The, the, the chief priests knew the Word. They could quote this scripture from heart. They could quote the whole of the, of the Torah from heart. Is it your love of the, of the Word, but you don't have the love of the Father? Are you a good person? And I wrote this down. I don't know why I wrote it down this way. This is very Jennings of me. You're a good person, never spit, never cuss, never fight status. The same stones that the chiefs had, the only stone that can bear the weight of your sin is the rock of Jesus Christ. The chief priests were condemned then, and the antithesis of that condemnation as we walk as resurrected life now. We become a greater mystery to the world as our abiding love of Christ grows through the sanctification of ourselves because we are walking, talking, resurrected, dead people brought to new life. Amen? That deserves one. When Lazarus walked out of the tomb, it said that people began to go find Lazarus and would be saved because the same new life that Lazarus had, we have now. So as we walk through our life, we have to be walking, talking, dead people raised from the dead. We are new life in Jesus Christ. That should be the only message that should come out of us. This is why you're not called to be an undercover Christian, to be a lone wolf Christian, to be a sideline Christian, or a worldly Christian. You're called to be peculiar people. And I know that it may seem like it can be hard because as we become these peculiar people and our lives change and we change and we have deep abiding love with Jesus and the people that we have grown to make friendships and relationships with, this will offend them. If we're doing what we're supposed to do and that's, I just want you to know who Jesus is. Like, well, this is how I think about myself. This is my new identity. Man, you know, I got I got. Jesus is such a better identity than the thing that you're trying to make up. We will offend the world with this message. But it's okay. Because for every 100 people who reject it and walk away, that one that will come to you and say, I want whatever this Jesus thing is. I want to be saved. Will you help me? It will all be worth it. Because the love of God and the beauty of Jesus is worth it. So as we continue to walk out of these doors, as we go through our life, the cornerstone of our life as Christians, as believing people, is that we are friends, we are family because of our abiding love of Jesus, and then our relationship to the world is one that shares this message no matter what. 
And you are not to conform into the image of the world. You are to conform to the image of Christ through his deep abiding love. Amen? So I'm going to pray. I'm going to call the band up because uh, I've always wanted to do that. And that will be the second time I've gotten to do it. And I'm going to pray for us as we move. I ask that you would stand and reflect as we pray and respond to this message. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this time of worship. I thank you for uh, my church family who has loved me so well. I thank you for your love. God, I ask that you would continue to be with us in this time as we, as we sing and as we pray. Lord, we love you and we ask you right now to move in this time. Give us strength to share this message with the world that you are the cornerstone salvation, that you are the cornerstone of all creation, that you are the cornerstone of our lives, of our marriages, of our finances, of our raising our children, of our singleness. You're the cornerstone of all of these things. You are the Messiah. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Let's sing together.